Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 144, Returning Home. This week we're discussing part one of the Battlestar Galactica miniseries, as well as season two, episode 20 of Angel, Over the Rainbow. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay, so we're going to start talking about Battlestar Galactica, the the actual miniseries here. Yeah. Um, yeah, where to begin? <laughs> there, there's a lot to talk about. Um, That's so, a question. I mean, I guess, why don't we just begin at the beginning? Um, always a good place to start. And just kind of talk a bit about the situation and stuff, because we get... Um, you know, we get the uh, overlay, like the text as, um, you know, as we're starting off there of sort of the background and the history. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll just, I'll I'll go ahead and just read it um, because I feel like we can talk about like each sentence. We probably could spend like a half hour just on like the opening text. <laughs> yeah. What uh, does easily. this mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but okay. So the Cylons were created by man. They were created to make life easier on the 12 colonies, and then the day came when the Cylons decided to kill their masters. After a long and bloody struggle, an armistice was declared. The Cylons left for another world to call their own. A remote space station was built, presumably between uh, where the humans are the, and the Cylons are. Sure. Um, although it doesn't actually say that. Uh, where Cylon and human could meet and maintain diplomatic relations. Every year, the colonials send an officer. The Cylons send no one. No one has seen or heard from the Cylons in over 40 years. And of course, that uh, text ends and, oh, suddenly they're Cylons. Um, yeah, the door opens on the unsuspecting officer who's sort of yeah, baffled into yeah. like submission. Yeah. Um. Well, and part of that's not just the fact of seeing Cylons, but also that... Um, we don't know her name when she first walks in, but we later learn that she's number six. Mm. Uh, although that's, I guess that's not really, we don't know that that's her name. She just sort of says in this episode that she's the sixth model right. um, of 12. Right. Um, but yeah, like I think part of like, we don't actually know what he thinks, right? Does he, does he think that she's also a Cylon or does she think maybe, uh, or does he think that she's maybe a human mm. who has somehow sided with the Cylons or something? Like, because just in their dialogue, we don't like she doesn't actually reveal like she like the different six does later mm-hmm. uh, with Gaius. Um, she doesn't actually reveal. She just sort of asks him, "Are you alive?" And right. you know, there's like a very little bit of dialogue between them, but, um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I kind of take it that everybody would be of the same mind as, cause by the end of this episode, only Baltar knows that Cylons can appear human, right? right. Like nobody else even knows this yet. And, right. and so I kind of take Baltar's, um, idea as sort of the default, you know, of, of everybody else, which is that nobody has even imagined that this is a possibility. Um, and so, I mean, 
I suppose the officer doesn't really say much, so I could be wrong, but I kind of think that's the implication is that, um, you know, uh, he, why would he think that this is, you know, that she's an evolved version of this? There's no reason for him to think that other than that right. she arrives with, you know, some sort of metallic Cylons and everything. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and right. The fact that Cylons show up, like, I mean, she looks perfectly human. So why wouldn't why would she you sort assume of assume? Otherwise? Yeah. 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 It's sort of, it's sort of the straightest, you know, uh, way to a conclusion is that she must be a human mm-hmm. who's somehow working with the Cylons. Um, even though yeah. that doesn't make perfect sense either, I can imagine in that situation it's like the best you can come up with as an explanation. Right. And I think that helps to explain why he's so sort of, um, you know, passive in that scene of not like immediately reacting or freaking out or, or, fighting back or doing anything is just, it's, you know, I don't think it has even occurred to him to really, you know, be alarmed yet. It's just that this is so bizarre that he kind of doesn't even really know what to think of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and so that's the opening text. And I mean, there's a lot there, um, but also can't discount the opening spoken line, which mm-hmm. is, are you alive? And you know, obviously, like, we're not going to go talking ahead of whatever. Answer but that, that just, question here. <laughs> that, yeah, that just, that becomes, like, a very significant question throughout the series of who mm-hmm. is alive, what is life, what does it mean to be alive, you know, what, like, those are all wrapped up in, yeah. you know, this this conflict between Cylons and humans, of what, what does it mean to be alive, and, and I think, um, you know, maybe we can get to a little bit later when we talk about Adama and his speech and whatever, but there's that, you know, sense of responsibility um, that he talks about of, mm-hmm. you know, creating life and, and um, you know, even if it's sort of artificial life, whatever that means. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that question of, are you alive? I think, and actually it comes in, sorry, I'm like skipping around a little bit because even just thinking about, um, Six and Baltar mm-hmm. and you know their relationship so you get like you know um you know her question are you alive to the diplomat there in the space station mm-hmm. uh, you know she like she tells them to like prove it basically right and they start kissing and mm-hmm. then like you see Six and Baltar and they're you know kissing and having sex and stuff and it's like right. you know obviously that's not all there is to being alive but like there's sort of that visceral response to "Are you alive?" and I even think of um, right. This is how you prove it, you know. Right, right. I even think of um, uh, you know going. I think I, I think I brought this up, you know, this episode before in, in the episode of Firefly, uh, the message where, uh, or is it the message? I can't remember which uh, episode it is where, um, you know, Jane sort of talks about you know death making him want to go out and like find a woman, you know, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, just that idea that one, one way at least that people seem to be more alive is to sort of do that, you know, right. I don't know if romantic is quite the right term for it, but you know, something visceral and, um, sort of life affirming. um, Right. Right. Um, 
Well, and also too, there's the kind of neat idea that it's the robot who asks the human that first, you know, that, um, like, uh, you know, there's even some kind of, like, you would think that's something a human would ask a robot is like, like, okay, I I've built an AI and we're going to test it for, you know, like think of, think of like Ex Machina, right? Like the movie, like that could be like the thesis of Ex Machina is, are you alive? Prove it, you know, like, Sure. It, it proved to us, you know, in the next, like, however long this movie is on, that, that you are really alive, whatever that means. Yeah. But this starts with that same kind of, like, she's very curious looking at him, like, are you alive? Like, like I know I am, but I don't know about you. You have to, like, prove it to me, which is an interesting kind of, like, flip since we're told yeah. in the opening that the Cylons are the, like, artificial intelligence and everything. Well, and that's so, and that goes all the way back to the to the beginnings of computing. Um, so you have the Turing test, which right. is, um, you know, Alan Turing, um, you know, basically created the digital computer, and mm-hmm. the uh, you know the test being if um, you can talk with a computer. How, however, that is, I think originally they sort of envisioned it as like, you know, through a computer terminal, and couldn't. Mm-hmm you know, if, if you could talk to that computer and, and um, you couldn't tell whether it was a computer or a human, then it sort of passes the Turing mm-hmm. test. Um, and this is, this is that sort of flipped, right? That's, mm-hmm. it's the, uh, you know, it's the computer asking the human and, and, you know, in that model of the Turing test, the, it's not, it's not supposed to be the computer testing us. Right. Like, right. like right. we're human. We know we're human, right. but, but put in that situation, it is sort of baffling and you can sort of, you can sort of see how he's put off by even the question because it's, mm-hmm. you know, you don't ask yourself if you're alive, you just live like yeah. on a daily basis, you just live and you are alive. Like it's not something you question per se. Um, and you know, you can even go back to Descartes, you know, I, I think therefore I am like, if I'm, right thinking and talking and doing things. And of course I'm alive. That's what life is. Right. But then, you know, to be, to have that questioned, you almost mm-hmm. wonder like, well, could any of us pass the Turing test? And if we couldn't as humans, as, you know, sort of verifiable humans, then is the Turing test real? Or if we can't pass it, then does that mean that we're not actually verifiable humans? <laughs> like, right. you know, right. what does that, what does that mean? Um, right. So, right. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of like as the the diplomat is trying to like parse all this out in his mind, his station gets blown up. You know, like in the time yeah. it takes him to kind well, of be and, sitting there figuring out like what the heck is going on, everything right. blows up. And let's um, face it, you know, uh, any sort of heterosexual man who has a beautiful woman come walk in and start making out with him sure. is not going to necessarily be in the you know, clearest frame of mind. Sure. No. And I think that's really important that like number six is the first and for a while, the only Cylon that we see, like who do they send on the mis- on the missions among the humans right. to do all the infiltration? It's number six, you know, and sure. they don't all look like number six. Like she's clearly like, you know, you, you know, not to say they're not all attractive in their own way, but like, you know, you've got, 
she's sort know, of the she's, she's tall and blonde and sort of the classically right. you know attractive woman yeah right like she's kind of the like you know i'm reminded um, of like the the the, the, the buffy yeah or like i'm thinking of like the buffy bot episodes of buffy where like sure. of course like he makes himself like you know a hot girlfriend like you know he's not right. going to do otherwise so she's sort of chosen for those qualities you would kind of assume um yeah you know so that's sort of part of the way she either the way she works or who she is however you want to phrase it well, but well well and i i refer to bombshell sort of as a double entendre there too because it's because of her that right you know, the bombs go the, off the, yeah. the defenses get brought down and mm -hmm. yeah the nuclear explosions occur right right um so yeah, I, so I also real quick before we kind of leave the the first attack on like the armistice station too. Before we stop our fifteen minutes, before we talk start about the first thirty on seconds, like one of point. Oh my gosh! All right, so the the bit. I mean, you mentioned, I think in your notes, and I'm sure we could talk about it more. Is like some of the the tricks that they stole from Firefly in the cinematography, and a lot of that I think is. Mm like some of the the realism of the way it's done like it's it, it's it's all that kind of like it's as if there's a camera in space so there's like zoom shots and like like cameras almost catching a ship that's like right out of frame and all that kind of thing and i yeah. feel like along with that you get that interesting bit where you know the uh the ship the ship explodes and you get a chunk of debris that flies and hits the camera so it's almost again like mm. this is documentary footage and the camera gets destroyed you know right. in the actual explosion of the thing right or i mean i and maybe maybe it's not even documentary because that almost feels like it's um you know like you have a camera crew there but maybe it's like uh uh external like surveillance camera so it's like almost right, like right. almost found footage you know right yeah in a way. yeah like the um, cctv camera gets like yeah. dinged by like yeah um you know so i think yeah. like stuff like that those little tricks to make you feel like the you're in a real world that has real kind of weight and consequences and obeys sort of the laws of physics and all those sorts of things yeah at well, least and to and, a certain extent. And so we did we did bring up, you know, um, sort of in our introduction last week, how, uh, you know, you did have a special effects team that had worked on Firefly also working mm -hmm. on this show. Um, and this is this is 2003. It's mm -hmm. like a year after yeah. Firefly, you know, so like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not we're I mean, we're talking about like that's for those who saw it, you know, and, you know, were able to um at least see a few episodes live you know when fox wasn't screwing people over uh <laughs> and and screwing around with like the order and stuff like yeah. you know you get the sense that like that's just i the i don't know if cinema cinematic graphics uh, cinema talk i don't know um sort of the zeitgeist of filmmaking uh yeah. however you would phrase that at the time like you know right. maybe it's just sort of that thing you know again coupled with you know being a similar company to to do some of those effects and stuff um uh, so speaking of which to take an aside um <laughs> i was i was actually wrong um or i may not have been wrong but 
uh, I missed, um, I had stated that uh, uh, Serenity, the ship, shows up as part of the fleet. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually not. It's actually in this episode. Did you oh, catch it? I didn't, no. So in, it's, it's not in space, which is part of, um, you know, why you may not have caught it. But in the scene where uh, Laura Roslin gets her diagnosis, uh -huh. just, just before that, the camera is looking up through the glass ceiling there. And you see oh, okay. like ships, you know, sort of in, you know, hovering and coming right. down and flying across. And uh, in that scene, Serenity is okay. coming down uh, <laughs> there. Funny. Like, like it's real brief. And it's just before the camera pans down and, and you see Rosalind sitting there. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that neither here nor there. I, I, it may show up again later in the fleet. I can't remember. I, I seem to recall seeing like a still. Yeah. With it. Like, yeah. Like maybe way in the background, like of, very small, yeah. like, yeah. Like maybe it's one of the ships that, that actually is able escapes to the escape. planet. Yeah. Um, but like, I, you know, it no, like, you know, serious action happens but yeah you know, or anything. like yeah. they don't have like a sound stage of serenity or anything that's part of the set right right uh, but anyway right but there i mean there's also that long tracking shot which i think yeah reminded us both of serenity of again with the kind of although serenity the, and every serenity the movie serenity the movie right happens right. after this because that doesn't come out till 2005 that's true. That's true. Um, um, but, but but Joss has already done long tracking shots in oh yeah. in in Buffy and everything. Oh yeah. Like we noticed that a couple times. So that's like another technique they kind of have in common. Um, yeah. And as like a good way to like introduce, not just like okay, introduce the world, introduce a lot of characters like really quickly, and also like give you a sense of oh my gosh, we actually have a really big set that we can like show off that like we actually can do a long shot like this because we built a set that actually is this big and can take us into all these different rooms. So it's yeah. not just sort of cut up and edited all the time. Well, and it, yeah. And so there's the set aspect of it, of course, but also the, the, to give you that visual space of the size of the ship, like in the world mm -hmm. itself, you know, um, yeah, it definitely provides that perspective. And you get, um, you also get what, what I find interesting, though, too, is, and I've never been on, like, a military submarine. My brother was in the Navy, and he uh, he didn't serve on submarine, but he served on, like, an aircraft carrier, which mm. I would sort of liken, you know, to this, yeah. you know, a Battlestar would be sort of the space equivalent, maybe. Right, um, which actually, uh, in addition to studying political science, Ron Moore served or at least stayed on a aircraft carrier, yeah. like a, a, you know, ocean, you know, aircraft carrier for a while. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the knowledge again comes back to him having that experience. Um, and, and so one of the things that um, strikes me too, is not just that you get a sense of like the perspective and the space within, you know, the Battlestar, but also uh, how quickly, 
you go from one area to another. Like you mm-hmm. walk through a hatch and suddenly you're in a completely different, mm-hmm. like it, it feels completely different. You're, you know, in the bathroom or yeah. whatever, or you're in the quarters versus, you know, the CIC or the hangar deck or whatever. And it's like, you're just walking through a hatch and in one sense, like all the hatches are the same and sort of nondescript, but on mm-hmm. in another sense, like you're actually like visiting completely different sort of yeah ecospheres within the ship yeah (laughs) Um, yeah and that's something i i don't i think we have for later in our notes so maybe we shouldn't talk about it right this moment but i want to talk about is like each of those different sections of the ship has its own character too and like it has a different feel and the kind of people that work in it have a particular style like and they have individualities within that but like and and hierarchies know, and and hierarchies all and all that. Yeah. But there's still it's sort of I think you can characterize different sections of the crew, kind of depending on where they work. Um, sure. So, oh yeah, definitely. Um, but maybe we should talk a little bit more about the Cylons up front. Um, I mean, so we kind of wanted to talk about like the actual attack itself, and then on a smaller scale, sort of. I guess Six's role in that as like the main infiltrator and Baltar as her unwitting accomplice in that whole thing. Um, we yeah, well, we should talk about the level of wittingness. That sure, sure, has. sure. Because as Six says, he has a wonderful gift for self-deception. So you shouldn't right. necessarily believe everything that uh, that Baltar tells you, but. Kind of to talk about, to start like on their kind of relationship and everything, it, it does strike me like, especially in like this miniseries, which is so much about like that kind of post, that post-terrorism, post-9-11, 9/11 kind of grim dark, the world is ending, apocalyptic feel, how much, it kind of amazes me how it's the villains in a way that we rely on for like all of the humor, you know? Like sure. the lighter moments are all with Baltar, you know, and six, hmm. six, two, but kind of as like the one who kind of sits there kind of like laughing at him a little bit. Like she's sort of puzzled by, right. you know, his reaction to this whole thing. Um, and not that there's not seriousness, like it's deadly serious what's going on between them. But the fact that like of all the human characters, like Baltar's the closest thing to a villain, but He's kind of a goofball and kind of a doofus. And, you know, you know, I certainly at this point am not, I wouldn't say I'm like rooting for him, but like, I, I certainly am. I feel like he's an enjoyable presence to watch. Like you keep wanting to come back to, you know, to see his reactions to everything. Well, and so obviously I know we'll get more into it, but you also get the sense that like, a lot of his uh, fame and stuff isn't wholly earned. And so sure. it, he, there is a sense where he's almost, he almost sort of does take a role of um, the fool in mm-hmm. a way, because he's, he, he's like, you get the, you get the comment um, from six where she says uh, she wrote half of the code that he <laughs> is like getting it. But of course she's not, being praised for it and i mean in a sense she doesn't care to be like that's not part of it's not the point yeah you know that's not part of her mission or whatever on the other side you see sort of the misogyny of it of 
him being uh, completely willing to accept all of the credit and the awards and, yeah. you know, the um, attentiveness of the females who come into contact with him, who are, I mean, you know, he's not a bad looking man or anything, but you get a sense that, you know, his popularity is one of the things that, uh, and money and, yeah. you know, whatever, yeah. like, would he be a personal friend of the president if it weren't for, you know, the things that he had done, which, you know, half of which are things that he hadn't actually done, <laughs> you know? Sure, sure. Um, um, no, and I think, like, you mentioned, like, you kind of alluded to even the idea of, like, he, like you said, he's not unattractive, but he's not, like, an Adonis either. And, like, even just, like, the height difference, like, between him and, like, there's something so kind of comic about, you know, this kind of tall supermodel, you know, with this kind of Napoleon complex little guy, <laughs> who, you know, yeah. is much more his personality is much bigger than he looks you know to look at him he doesn't yeah. you know but he has this kind of arrogant sort of you know entitled swagger about him that makes him sort of appear bigger than he should be i think yeah um yeah and and so it does make you wonder and not not that you necessarily wonder whether he's smart or not but it's not really about his intelligence. It's about his, you know, are the accolades that he gets, you know, mm. sort of worthy of the things that he's actually done. And and you find out that they're not because, because again, we know that he, he literally hasn't done half the things that he gets credit for. <laughs> like right. Right. half of that was done by someone else. Um, right. And it's, I think that's interesting then to see like the first we see is him like, you know, uh, interviewing for like a TV show, right. like you realize, I think the implication kind of being that, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's, he, he must be smart. He must be intelligent. I don't think you'd be an award-winning scientist necessarily, although maybe his entire career is, you know, false. Well, he we might, don't really know, he, but it's, it's he more might about get lesser awards or like he might, sure, he, he that might, might get him to not this, have that prestige. That, that might get has. him so far. But right. then it's like, it's those, it's those personality skills. It's that like politicking and the, the ability to kind of be charming in the limelight and, you know, schmooze with the right people and all those sorts of things. And even just his own, you know, self, you know, kind of self-importance and everything. His belief that I guess if Six says, you know, you have a remarkable, you know, gift for self-deception... It's like when he says that he did all the work, does he believe it? Like, you know, he might, you know, I don't know to what extent he sort of begrudgingly admitted, yes, you helped a bit, but it might be that even he's convinced himself that he deserves the, you know, praise that he's getting for what he's done. Um, you know, like he's such a good convincer. He's convinced himself. Um, um, which, and then kind of, no, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, which ties into the quote that you said, you know, before about him being able to, uh, uh, deceive himself, the, the amazing capacity of, for self-deception. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and, and sort of sixes amusement and bemusement, 
Um, yeah, you know, yeah. at, at that point, like, how do you do that? Even right. now, as the fate of your entire world hangs in the balance, all you can think about is how this affects you. And that's, that's true. All like, even in just what we see of him so far, like, literally, as you know, the bombs are still sort of spouting mushrooms yeah. behind them, you know, he's thinking, like, clearly thinking about, you know, contemplating stealing the winning lottery ticket from this yeah. mostly blind woman who can't find the glasses on the top of her head. Right. You know, right. Um, like he's way more concerned about it. And so, you know, I, I know we don't want to get too much into like the other characters necessarily at this point, but, but, you know, that's, that's clearly contrasted with Hilo who gives up his seat and puts himself yeah. in danger thinking that, Baltar is someone worthy of, yeah. uh, you know, being saved because he's smart and capable and whatever. When in the reality is he's half as smart and capable, maybe, sure. you know, potentially anyway, uh, half, you know, you know, than than what he's actually sort of proven he can be. Right. Or Hilo's question about like, you know, give me one reason why like I'm more important than him, and it's like, well. Okay, what are you? you are, what are you going to judge it by? Are you going to judge it by like Hilo's kind of saying? You know, your intelligence is what makes you. You know, whether or not Baltar is as intelligent as we think. The question of does that even matter, or the very fact that Hilo would sacrifice his own seat for Baltar's marks his character in a way that you know, like, what do you want your next generation to be? Do you want it to be, you know? Uh, the self-serving award-winning scientist or do you want it to be you know someone like Hilo who serves other people um, and it kind of not only Hilo but it kind of sets Baltar apart from everybody because everybody else we see is like either a soldier or you know a civil servant so by definition they're all supposed to be like sacrificing themselves for the good of the people like that's their job like, so you kind of expect them to be brave and selfless and courageous and all these other things. And Baltar is the opposite of all of that. Um, right. You know, he might have the, the, he wants you to think he is, you know, because yeah. he's working with the government for the Ministry of Defense and all this stuff. Like, there's this veneer of the good I'm doing for the people, you know, but, um, you know, very lightly underneath that you see the the self-interest kind of lurking underneath um yeah. the fact that he gives defense secrets away to a woman he doesn't know much about just for a chance to like get enough help to get him you know the the things that he wants you know he's certainly not afraid to like sell out principles yeah. and everything oh yeah well and the question becomes does he have principles <laughs> like mm -hmm. is you know uh, I, I think you're right. Like it's, it's totally about appearance with him. So like, you know, in the interview, he's, he's all nice and, uh, you know, a little bit flirty with the mm -hmm. interviewer and that kind of thing. And then, you know, he talks about like, uh, with six, he, you know, he, he's like, Oh, you know, Oh, you're going to meet someone. I'm insanely jealous. And then he's like, well, I'm, I'm going to do work. And then of course, like, what's he do? He goes back and he's in bed with another woman. Like, yeah. You know, um, or, you know, when he, you know, again, when he is contemplating taking the uh, um, 
you know, the number from, from the woman um, who can't find her glasses. And Hilo calls him. He's like, hey, aren't you guys Baltar? And he immediately thinks like, oh dear, I've been found out. Yeah. And tries to like deny that he was doing anything wrong. When in fact, like, Hilo's like impressed by the fact that he's yeah. there. You know, like, yeah, it just, it's it's that he, he's totally about the surface you right. know, appearance of things. And he's willing to do anything that puts him in a good light. Right. You know, regardless of what he actually has done or is intending to do. Right. But it's in such an entertaining way. Like, he's a total slime <laughs> ball. But at the same time, like, I, that's like one of my favorite parts is when it's like, hey, are you guys Baltar? I haven't done anything. Like, it's such a poor, like, it's or, so obvious. Or like, like the fact that like, of all, <laughs> of all the people running towards the ship, yeah. he's the one who falls down. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, like yeah. even the guy on crutches is, like, <laughs> right. faster than him and, right, like, right. you know, more yeah. capable of getting getting there in time. But he falls down. And, yeah. and, like, you get, like, the person in the robe, like, jumping over him. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, it is it is humorous. Um, yeah, and uh, that doesn't contradict. I just think it, it's really interesting that, like, this is the one that, like, we're allowed to kind of laugh with. Um, yeah. Is the guy who just destroyed the entire world. You know, right. and is, you know, or at least at least put it in a position to be destroyed. Yeah, because I, I do want to again without like necessarily getting ahead of ourselves in the story. Like, I do think we should revisit that idea of is is what happened. Like this, this is the I would liken this to the um, you know, teach boys not to do bad things to girls. You know kind mm -hmm. of uh stuff that we see on social media and stuff today mm -hmm. like you know there there's definitely an aspect of you know you need to be responsible and and you know handle yourself well but there's also the aspect of you know with baltar like yes he was indiscreet in many many ways but does that necessarily mean that that he's at fault per se, or sure. is there, or is, you know, or is the blame, I mean, I don't think we're saying not to blame the Cylons, but like how much of that blame can sort of be shifted on him, mm -hmm. you know, given that like, he could have very easily not allowed his sort of ego and desire for companionship or whatever you want to call that, um, you know, to overcome his better sensibility and, you know, he could very easily not, you know, have followed proper security protocols and not given, right. you know, six complete. You know, what's funny, too, is like we don't actually get the name. Like, did she, she must have used the name with him. Right. No, but we no. don't. But we don't know what that name is. And the question is, does he ever really know? Like, right. or is she just right. like another woman to him? Yeah. Like, like, I mean, we call her six because that's the only way that she describes herself in this whole episode you know this whole mini you know first right. half of the miniseries because he says i'm i'm the sixth of 12 models and you know you know he's got to be wondering like ooh, what do the other models look like right um right and and so there's that question of like does he even know her name does she even have a name right like right with this is like anyway. narcissistic jerry with can't he he can't bring himself to ask her girl his girlfriend her name because right that would be to admit that he doesn't know it you know and um <laughs> You know, that's, it could very well be that she's, you know, it's like, it just gosh, never came, that never just came never up. came up or it went in one ear and out the other. And that's sort right. of water under the bridge at this point. 
Right. Um, um, yeah. So like, but I, but I do want to like revisit that, you know, from time to time. Cause I, I don't think it's a secret to see that like he, he sort of Baltar will swing from even in this episode, you know, mm-hmm. he swings from sort of uh, the, you know, dramatic racking guilt of what he's done. Yeah. And, and the, um, you know, over, you know, of the amazing capacity for self-deception and desire to uh, yeah. think about how all of this affects him, mm-hmm. you know, because um, he certainly is at the center of his own universe. Um, right. Well, and both of those things are kind of narcissistic. <laughs> oh, yeah. You absolutely. know, each of them is self-focused, you know, like it's either I, I've i destroyed the world and I'm solely responsible or it's right. it's. What oh, have I done? I, they're going to kill yeah. me because of what I did. You know, both of those are very right. like focused on him in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that's also good. The, the racking guilt that you mentioned, like, again, to contrast him to every other human character, like you have all these soldiers who are, they have a job to do. They have to sort of be stoic and, you know, not sure. react to the fact that all of their families just got wiped out. And here you've got Baltar, who's like the only one who's like having an emotional response to everything. Like he's the one yeah. who's like well, crying and screaming and, you know, uh, having that sort of visceral reaction. And it's not clear that he has any family <laughs> or anyone that like genuinely cares for him. He might sure. brag about being friends with the president, but, right. you know, like how close is that friendship? We don't right. know because the president dies. Like right. we don't we don't ever really find out you know, how valid or how, you know, sincere that relationship may or may not be. And there's literally no one else that we find out he's connected to in any yeah. uh, deep or meaningful way other than six, maybe, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, right. and even that, like we've already said is kind of, like, maybe he doesn't even know her name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Anything else about Six and Baltar sort of uh, as a pair? Well, just that. Um, so we do get from Six, you know, she she tells him about Cylons and stuff. So like you pointed out earlier, like he he now knows and is the only one who knows that Cylons can look like humans. Um, right. But she also explains to him um, that she's connected. So like... Mm-hmm. this body will die, but her mind gets uploaded or whatever, which um, sort of, you know, goes back to the Doctor Who stuff, right? Of, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the minds being uploaded to the sphere and all that stuff. Right, um, right. Or like or like whatever. regeneration, you know, your mind um, carries on, but you get a new sure. body and all that kind of thing. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So, so you get that additional explanation too, just sort of to fit in with the mythology of, like this is, there there is a, you know, aspect that like he doesn't sort of hint at it, but um, maybe he'll think about the fact that like oh well if she's like loaded into a new body then maybe that means I'll see her again, mm-hmm. and you do get that, and and so I wanted to bring that up because you do get that moment of him, uh, sort of yeah. his first vision of her as he's boarding, um, you know, uh, boomers. Uh, ship there and yeah he thinks he sees her in the crowd but turns out she's not there so right right uh, um 
And also, too, the fact that uh, she shields him from the blast of, you know, the bomb, too. You know, that, okay, we know she doesn't sort of, I guess, mind dying because it's not really permanent death for her. So, you know, that's why she's sort of okay with being on the ground at the time. But um, she certainly doesn't have to protect him um, or give him any explanations at all. But she does. And obviously we don't get any reasons for that. But, um, you know, maybe there's a kind of, it could be there's a manipulative, like, ulterior motive. Or, Mm. you know, it could be that it's just a, you know, for whatever reason, she wants to protect him from that. So, And and there are the questions, too, about love. So, you know, again, um, you know, she, she... She asks, do you love me? She asks him, so are you, you love serious? Me? And, and right. Like he, right. So he, he's clearly not someone who uses that word in any sort of meaningful way. Um, or even maybe at all. And like, we don't know specifically like what their sort of agreement is, but you do get the sense that she loves him. Mm-hmm. At least she's told him that um, because in their conversation, uh you know sort of in in the town there uh right right he says he says to her you know you did this because you love me and she she sort of accepts that and says and also you know because god told me to and whatever um so that you know again like there's this question of are you alive one of the components of life is love right and so it's not just the visceral making out and sex it's it's the deeper you know feelings of that and so again you have that sort of the inversion here being of the machine the cylon being the one who's sort of confessing love now Mm -hmm. again is that does that mean she truly loves him or is it you know a programmed response we don't know but you know the opposite of that yeah good to keep in mind i think you know the opposite of that is baltar readily admitting he doesn't love her and so Mm -hmm. for him like he's the more mechanic Mm -hmm. of the two at least in their sort of outward responses anyway Mm -hmm. um of course you know the question is is that also true on his part because he clearly is looking for her and sort of misses her it seems you know Mm -hmm. in that moment when he's when he thinks he sees her in the crowd there so right right is is this another of his self-deceptions? You know, is it self-deception for him to say he doesn't love her? Who knows with Baltar? I think that's what, like, is, yeah. you know, it, the layers of honesty and lies and deception are so tangled right. that I think we will spend the rest of the show yeah. trying to tell the difference. You know, like, I and again, does he even know? You know, um, right, I think sure. that's that's up for debate and that's probably a good thing to keep like coming back to with his character. You know, in, in literature, you have the unreliable narrator and Baltar's not necessarily na- the narrator here, but you know, you get, it's like that same feel of the unreliableness of anything that he says or does. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to tell what's authentic and what's, what's not. Right. Right. All right. Well, <laughs> well, we've made it, almost three quarters of the way into the show and we haven't really gotten past the Cylons yeah. yet. Um, 
And there's so, actually probably more to talk about with the Cylons. Well, but. there is because, okay, so there's, there's one major thing I want to say about like the wider attack. And then if you have anything, you know, sure, go for it. But um, one thing I wanted to bring up is this um, uh, Rosalind asks at some point when she has contact with, with some someone in the government, whether mm. they've offered surrender, you know, of has this been even offered or considered or anything? Yeah, and it and it comes back that yeah, it has, and we got no response. Right, and so I want to kind of because other than number six, we don't see any Cylons. Like we have no, they're this faceless. Right, we see enemy. the ships. But we see yeah. the ships, but we we have no personalities, no sense of, I mean, motivation. We can guess based on like the backstory um but we don't actually know what their uh you know reasoning or thought process or intentions are and mm. but the one thing i think is clear is that this is not a negotiable thing you know there's no demands made and when you know the humans reach out and try to offer surrender it's rejected um and it is like a purely like this is a mission of like absolute genocide. Like it's not a, just oppression or revenge. It's it's we're gonna wipe out every single, you know, human being. So um, I don't know. There's much more to say about that other than that is important for the situation of the show. Um, it's not just a sure. war against another enemy. It's a flight from, you know, these overwhelming attackers who will, you know shoot on sight basically sure well and so sort of going along with that then you get the you know you get the fact that nobody's seen them in 40 years and it's the assumption on the humans part is everything's kind of hunky-dory like <laughs> yeah you know we're we're sort you know we're sort of i i guess in maybe maybe sort of a cold war kind of thing um where it's like you know yeah, they kicked our butts before, but we also kicked theirs. And so there's mm -hmm. sort of that aspect of mutually assured destruction mm -hmm. when clearly, like, the Cylons have not been, you know, idle. Yeah. <laughs> um, they've, they've obviously been spending the last 40 years infiltrating and, uh, you know, trying to get the defenses down, which happens you know um mm -hmm. as we see here um through six and baltar uh but also apparently coming up with new weapons to use against them or, or new technology or whatever um because you get the you know uh you, you get like um d uh finding sort mm -hmm. of discovering that uh all of these ships are having like massive amounts like more malfunctions than mm -hmm. a ship should normally have um and then you have you know the vipers that go out you know to meet two you know you have this whole squad of vipers going out to meet two cylon ships and they're rendered helpless right. you know just completely inert um and then you know getting those reports of the same thing sort of happening all over the place and so yeah you kind of get this uh the sense that like clearly we were sitting on our butts when we should have been doing something more, uh, whatever that more, what, like maybe, maybe it should have been the humans going down and, you know, hunting down the Cylons and 
mm-hmm. you know, imposing genocide on them. Um, but or at least, you know, coming up with something new, like something different to stave them off, you know, if they did come. And uh, I think I think the reason the reason I want to point that out is because like uh, we talked a little bit about the Galactica and its status as um, you know an older ship, right? It's about mm-hmm. to be decommissioned. It's about you know it's got old technology and old parts, and you know it's being turned into a museum, and uh, it's one of the original battle stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and also sort of a symbolic one at that because it represents Caprica, we're told. Um, we learn from um, the PR guy there. Uh, yeah. What's his Doral. Name? Doral. And uh, the, um, you know, the fact that like it is this older ship and stuff and has this sort of symbolic, you know, nature to it. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, again, you know, you have like the machines, but then you also have the, you know, this, this older technology and stuff, but it turns out that like, it's that older technology that becomes the thing that they can't fight against. The Cylons can't fight against. Like they can't, they've, they figured out how to render like some of the newer stuff in our, but, Mm -hmm. but it's that older stuff that maybe they should have paid more attention to as well. So I I, I, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but no, I, I wanted to point out the irony of that because what you're talking about with this idea of, of people have been idle and haven't advanced the technology enough to be able to adequately fight the Cylons. That's Baltar's point of view is in his interview, he's talking about how, in his opinion, all of these tabooed, you know, areas of research are outdated and how we need to be getting back into, you know, all of the, like, you know, who knows what he wants to research, whether it's like, the networking and like more it's all the stuff that the silence can manipulate like the you know the digital networking and the ai and you know uh all that sort of thing whereas it's it's that's the thing which is vulnerable and mm. it's the fact that the battle star lacks that technology that ends up protecting it um which is also what doral says in his little speech is that like it's a relic from when they looked to the past for protection. Like, you know, mm. we, we were so terrified of our own technology that we like rejected it and went back to, you know, um, a time before we had like, you know, it would be sort of like, you know, if our, you know, fear of, you know, terrorism, if we decided to just get rid of the internet, you know, like the internet is clearly way too vulnerable causes more problems than it's worth we're just as a society you know gonna outlaw this you know and adama adama has stuck to that idea whereas maybe other people are starting to loosen up on the you know those those protections than they have been yeah um yeah or i was gonna say like the whole the fight between like the fbi and apple it's Mm -hmm. like if the solution of that is to like go back to like only having landlines you know rather than uh, smartphones ha- having and, smartphones yeah. and yeah or even cell phones in general or whatever right um, yeah so i wanted to talk to though a little bit about the whole idea of not having a networked ship i i don't know i how that works i i'm not quite convinced that it's 
possible or that they even sort of actually follow their own, um, uh, you know, sort of comments there because you get like, you get like the boards that like show like the fire in the one section of the ship and it shows the entire ship and it shows like all the lights all over the ship. So sure. I mean, clearly you have like some level of integration. Sure. So I, I feel like there's a, there's a bit of hand waving there a little bit between Adama saying he doesn't want it like a network ship and, right. and the actual reality of what we see on the various communications panels and, yeah. you know, all of that kind of thing. No, I think that's a good point. And I don't know if this makes sense because I feel like you understand computer technology, like to a degree that I can't talk to. So you can like, uh, but the way I've like rationalized it to myself is maybe there's a distinction which they don't quite make between like internal networking and like, uh, like, like, you know, maybe they have like, I, I can have a computer that has like um, software on it, but not necessarily have it be connected to the internet. So like, I can't get like an internet virus or something like that. Um, that's kind of how it, I've sort of explained it to myself is like, okay, things in the ship are connected to each other, but we ha don't have connections mm. To the outer, like the outside, you know, world or whatever. Um, uh, I, yeah, may, I mean, I, I. Whether or not that's see, what they intended, that, that's no, sort they of. Still have, they still have communications with other ships and stuff, though, too. Like that's, Sure, sure, like, but it's but it's a lot of wireless. Like they use this kind of yeah. 1940s, like, <laughs> right, you kind right. of get the idea of it's like a space version of like, you know, World yeah. War Two technology. Of like you know? shortwave radio yeah, and stuff. yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. now, whether that makes sense in space without an actual computerized network, I don't know. Well, um, no, and you're and right that there's a hand wave there of like, okay, we're going to pretend that there's a distinction here that might not like really exist. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I took it to mean internal networks. Um, you know, okay, maybe, maybe it's... I'm sure there are technical explanations that could could be made, you know, to explain how it happened. It just it sure. seems to me like, yeah, that there's a big, you know, wanting to have your cake and eat it to aspect sure. to that because you know you do have a command center that can monitor all the different parts of the ship and all of the different fighters outside the ship and mm -hmm. you know, uh, well, command things, <laughs> you know, from where they are. So maybe maybe you're right like maybe it's you know because certainly wireless radio and shortwave and all that was you know around well before actual computers and internet mm -hmm. and you know networks and stuff um so you know maybe maybe it is that there's a reliance there and like you know the phone like they they do actually have i made a joke about like hardwiring phones well all the phones are hardwired like right. you see him sort of you know answer his you know, phone on the wall, you know, right. not, it's not like Star Trek where you have like these handheld communicators and mm -hmm. you attach them to your belt or something. Right. So, you know, there is, there are systems like that, that maybe are not sort of computer networks as we think of them today, but I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it, to me, it feels like it has a little bit of that sort of hand waving aspect to it. So. And um, I'm sure. I mean, I think, probably in 
in almost any sci-fi that's that's going to be true of like we have to we have to create a world with technology that doesn't exist and so we have to kind of pretend that it can do things that you know can't really be done or that there are other ways of you know other third options of things that we haven't sort of you know uh actually been able to build yet um but um fair enough anyway um should we talk about the characters since that's next on our list an hour into the podcast (laughs) yeah why not um well, we were kind of talking around Adama, so we kind of have Adama first on the list as the, you know, commanding officer and kind of mm-hmm. basically one of, you know, maybe the main character or one of them. So um, what do we want to start? Where do we want to start with him? With Adama? Yeah. Um well, I mean, so the the whole, yeah, the whole, the sort of Luddite aspect, <laughs> um, I think, was where we were going to start. But so one of the things that I, I sort of was thinking about as I watched it through um, the second time, well, you know, third time, technically, I guess, um, for me, is how much he actually sort of acts as uh, a person who provides exposition throughout the episode sure um because like to some degree you get like a lot of people you know sort of having just like conversations and stuff and so like there's some expository stuff there like with you know starbuck and lee you get like you sort of can piece together what happened to Mm -hmm. zach you know um and then all you know same with lee and you know his his father um but there are moments where like like it's just Adama like either addressing, you know, like in his speech, you know, he mm-hmm. talks about the Cylon War is over and, you know, the cost of freedom and why are we worth saving and um you know, so you get like that aspect of it. Like sort of like it's it's not as heavy handed as I'm making it sound. I actually quite like his speech, but um, you know, it does have that sort of thing of hey, if you haven't been paying attention, here are all the themes you should be thinking about. <laughs> yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. um, it has that aspect to it. And then yeah. there's also like the, um, uh, you know, he, you know, more than once he gets like on, on the horn and he's like talking to the entire <laughs> ship and like, here's the situation as we know it, you yeah. know? And it's just like, yeah. like, and granted, like, I mean, this is a, ambitious episode um Mm -hmm. even even being only the first half of you know the miniseries story um you know so like there's a lot that happens so like to a certain extent you do have to have that sort of just like okay i'm gonna sum up you know where we are and what's going on because we don't have time to like show you all the scenes you know in actual footage um Mm -hmm. and to a slightly lesser extent, uh, you even get that a little bit with Roslyn when she addresses, you know, the people on her ship. Same sort of idea anyway of, you know, like, oh, okay, here's what happened. Here are the colonies that got hit. And, 
Yeah. Whatever. Um, so I don't know. I just, I mean, yeah. That, you know, I'm not, I don't know that that's like a big character thing per se, but it does, uh, you know, it's sort of a thing that I noticed this time around is that he definitely, he seems to be working. And I think it works. Part of the reason why it works as well as it does, because again, I feel like you, like you're not going to get away with an episode like this without having some exposition anyway, mm-hmm. is because he's the commander and you get the yeah. sense that like he's, He's a commander of a crew that like respects him. Like you get all of the people saying it, you know, it's an honor to serve under you and this and that. And so, um, you know, they respect him and they listen to him and he's, he's, a he's a valid, you know, authority figure mm-hmm. to, you know, be sort of giving this information. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, no, I, that's what I was thinking too was, um, one of the themes that he mentions in his speech is this idea of uh, not only creating life in the sense of artificial life, but creating life in the sense of having children, you know, being being a parent, being likened to being God. And how, you know, at the same time as he's talking about you know, when he says you can't play God, then wash your hands of the things you've created. It's like, OK, yes, there's the sense of we're responsible for we're as responsible for the Cylons as, you know the Cylons themselves, if not more so, because we mm. created and then kind of enslaved and fought them. Um, right. But, um, but there's also, you know, there's the, the stuff with that Lee has confronted him with in the back of his mind of, you know, you, Lee basically telling him you're responsible for the death of Zach and you're the reason that he died. And so, you know, when he's saying, you know, I've, you can't wash your hands of the things you've created. I think um, Zach is part of that too. So it's what this has to do with your point is that um, as the commanding officer, there's this sense of like, he's kind of acts like the dad of the ship and like the fact that they all call him the old man, like, you know, he's, he's their old man. And, um, and that's an interesting thing. Like all these really good admiring healthy relationships with all of these crew members and then these like broken relationships with his actual children, you know, whether it be Zach who died or Lee who they haven't had contact since Zach died and are still not to the point where they can really talk about it or forgive each other. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, like he can be the, the exposition guy because okay, it's all right if dad sits us down and explains things for a bit because that's his job. That's his job, like, to, like, set up the whole, tell the ship, okay, this is what we're going to do. Don't worry. We're going to, dad's going to take care of everything. We're going to be all right, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and, um, yeah, so bringing up sort of the dichotomy between um, his role as commander and then his role as father, certainly you know, plays a big part into that. But it also, there, there's also, um, you know, from a responsibility perspective too, there's that, uh, you know, the aspect of, of the fire. So when, mm-hmm. um, you know, they get hit with the nuclear weapon and, you know, part of the ship is on fire and you've got people sort of trapped and, you know, Tyrrell and um, Kelly are trying to evacuate, you know, that, you know, part of the ship. And, um, you know, the interesting part there is that in, in a way, Adama sort of 
not he doesn't like give up his responsibility or anything but he delegates right mm-hmm. to ty and says to him like he he's giving him the lecture about uh you know in in very few words he gives him sort of that lecture about responsibility and says either you're the xo or you're not yeah and you know ty goes over and he sort of hesitates and this and that and then like kelly is like ready to step up and and it seems like he's gonna have him pull you know have tyrell pull the people out so that they can save them and ty countermands that order and tells them you know shut it down you know close the hatches and vent everything and you know Mm -hmm. put out the fire um and it becomes this very you know this very small set you know the uh, tyrell later in talking to well i don't know if talking is the right word in sort of (laughs) you know bemoaning and bitching venting yeah yeah uh you know says you know repeatedly 40 seconds like all i needed was 40 seconds to Mm -hmm. uh, and I I wonder because Adama in that scene goes, you know, for, first of all reminds uh, Tyrrell that one, I'm not your father, mm-hmm. <laughs> and neither is Ty. Like he's your commanding officer, and don't you forget it. Yeah. But also says that he would make the same call, and you get that look from Tyrrell that he doesn't believe it. Mm. That knowing you know adama he would not have made the same call and so but this i think goes back to that idea of responsibility you have to take responsibility for what you've created and in a way adama has by delegating ty well and has created him by uh putting up with his drunkenness and Mm -hmm. you know i mean we already can see that ty is not very good as a senior officer Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but you also get the sense, like Ty, uh, you know, in his own bitching and bemoaning, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of, um, you know, says to Adama, you know, oh, you've always had a soft spot for Starbuck. Well, fails, yeah, yeah. fails to see the soft spot that Adama seems to have for Ty, too, because, right. you know, I mean, Adama knows how early he started drinking. Adama knows that. He's the one who threw the table over, you know, yeah. on the game. Like, and like, they've clearly been friends for a long time. So he knows Ty's faults, you know, perhaps way better than Ty knows them himself. Yeah. And so there is, you know, so he's sort of taking two responsibilities right there. He, one, he's taking responsibility as a commander to say, look, what, what was done had to be done. And, that was the decision XO made. And as my XO, I'm backing him on that, Mm -hmm. but also taking responsibility for the fact that even if he might ultimately have made a different decision, uh, he's the one who told Ty, you know, be the XO. And he's Mm -hmm. the one who's allowed Ty to sort of continuously make poor choices all along and put him in that position of being the XO. So, you know, I, I, I think there's there's a lot of different layers there, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, you get that when, like, you kind of realize, like, I mean, in some ways he seems to be a very good commanding officer, and he is highly respected, but there are those, the other aspect of the kind of dad stuff is is being kind of easy on his kids, and you do get that sense of, okay, you have your, your XO and one of your pilots, like, 
brawling in, you know, the lunchroom or whatever. And his response is like, oh, you crazy kids. You know, like, now there might be an aspect of it that we're like a day away from retirement. Are we really sure. going to get into this now? Sure. But, but I kind of get the sense that it's not just today. Like, right. you know, there's he's perfectly willing to turn a blind eye to people that he feels some affection for or people that he want that he likes having on his crew. Um, well, and whoever whoever counts as being in his soft spot, you know, and and Ty even says to Starbucks, you went too far this time. Like, right. like, yeah. this, like this is not their no. first altercation, it seems. No. It's yeah. And and you almost wonder if if that wasn't, you know, if throwing the table over wasn't a prov- provocation, you know, for the punch, precisely yeah. for that reason, knowing that like. This one, I mean, and they're egging each other on verbally well yeah. before that. So, yeah, you know, there's that. no. This is an ongoing, yeah, brawl. You know, brawl that these two are kind of coming back to over time. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Um. So yeah. No, and you know, I thought about should I? This is well, we're on the subject of Ty and Adama kind of together too, as just a way of like contrasting. You know, their kind of reputations. Um one of the things I like is in that beginning when they're introducing all the characters and you're kind of following the cameras, following one to the other, you know, you get the very, um, like very sincere kind of, uh, little speech that Gaeta gives Adama about like, you know, like almost to the point of overdoing it. Like it's, it's, you know, Mm -hmm. such an honor to have worked with you and all this stuff, like as sincere as he can make it. And then he goes out kind of salutes to Ty Ty's got his cup of something. And as Ty walks away, Gaiden kind of shakes his head like, ugh, like this guy again. And so it just tells you everything you need to know about their two reputations. Like, you know, right. here's the same officer and like, you know, kind of laying down the carpet for Adama and kind of, you know, behind the other guy's back, just saying like, you know, like there's, the, you can yeah. see there's no respect there of this is, Par for the course. This is what I've had to put up with for the past three years. Um, and it's not, obviously you get that with like multiple characters. Like you said, like the fact that Tyrrell, like, you know, is a, uses colorful language, like to, you know, complain about Ty. Like you don't get the sense that he has the same respect from the crew that Adama has. Um, again, not just because of this one call, but just sort of, in general, um, you know, he might be scarier than Adama in some ways. Like he might be more of like, you know, a hard ass than Adama, but it doesn't seem like he's more respected to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so since we're sort of talking about Adama and Tai too, um, do you want to talk about the age stuff? Because sure, I, I feel like that fits in a bit with, um, this discussion of, especially with Adama being sort of parental um, on on this ship as well. Um, so I'll just, in, to introduce it, I'll just say that you had pointed out that you kind of get a big gap between ages. So you have Adama and Ty, who are, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the senior officers on the ship. And then you have, like, much younger um people sort of in in all the other various roles um with maybe like the exception of like captain kelly seems like he could be a little more 
like close to middle age, if not quite mm -hmm. middle age. But, um, you know, you have like even like Starbucks, you know, is pretty young and mm -hmm. um, you have D and, you know, Lieutenant Gata. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're all sort of in the early stages of their career. Right. Um, uh, maybe, I mean, the only the only sort of other um, exception you might make is for Lee, who, you know, um, I guess Lee and Starbucks seem to be about the same age, but Lee seems like Starbucks seems like even though she's young, her her career is kind of set. Right? Like like <laughs> she she's peaked. <laughs> yeah, she kind of she yeah she's kind of risen to where she's going to rise to, and yeah. she's always going to sort of be a pilot and always gonna her be, attitude is going to hold yeah, her back. Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah. Yeah. Um, but right. like, yeah. Like but as Lee, you pointed out, Lee is also an exception in that he comes from the outside. He's not part of the crew um, originally. Of Galactica. Of yeah, Galactica. Yeah. Um, right. yeah. And so that did kind of struck me like after a couple of watches is like, yeah, like with a couple of exceptions, like, like you said, you kind of have these guys who are like, you know, ready for retirement, you know, and then with a few sort of minor exceptions, everybody else seems like they're maybe 30 at the most, you know, a lot of them a lot younger, like, and it kind of says to me, like, it kind of makes me wonder a couple things like, uh, you know, could that be part of the point of Galactica, like, as an older vessel, which is nearing retirement, and with a commanding officer who's nearing retirement, Maybe this isn't a place for people at the prime of their career. Maybe this is sort of like a, like a, in quotes, like training vessel, like that's meant for young people who, you know, are maybe gifted and, and deserve like, you know, high, you know, high ranking uh, jobs, but don't have like enough experience or something and need to get like, you know, before they can transfer to like right. the cushy job somewhere else. Um, Cause you get that idea of like, this, this vessel is going to be retired and they're all going to go somewhere else and probably somewhere better, you know, like, you know, they're going to get their, like a, a newer flashier battle star or they're going to get a promotion or, you know. Well, and it's, and it's hard to say. So um, we don't, I guess we don't get an official, you know, size of the fleet, but um, at one point we hear like, I think like 30 ships are destroyed in like the first wave and they say, Oh, that's like a quarter of the fleet. So like, there's 120 of these like battle stars, mm -hmm. you know, out there somewhere. And presumably they're, they're not the only ships that are out there, right? There might be other sizes of sure. military ships out there. Um, yeah. But you get the sense of, you know, I don't know what those other 120 ships are doing, patrolling around. Do they get in the fight? Like, you know, are they, are they police as well as military? Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, so are they like, you know, running down smugglers in addition to like keeping one eye open for Cylons or, right, right. you know, what else is going on. But um, you get a sense of what the sort of things that the Galactica does when, you know, the, um, you know, they, they sort of give the all hands on deck call and Ty comes out and he's like, what, is there like a ship right. disabled or is something? Shipping like, accident or yeah, something. Yeah. Was there yeah. a shipping yeah. accident? Like, like right. these this are, is this is, a, of... this is a typical yeah. mission that the Galactica would do. Not, right. it's not a, 
Right. It's it's more like it's not you a know, combat mission. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a combat mission. It's it's more like, you know, when the US sends a navy vessel to Malaysia because there was a tsunami and they're doing like a relief effort or something right. like that. Like it's right. it's totally non-military. It's right. you know. Right. Or like you said, if there's people. any fighting at all, it's minor skirmishes like like piracy or smuggling or, you know, yeah. or yeah. breaking up fights between whoever. Like it's not I yeah, mean, that's maybe a, that's the colonies big, have, you know, that's some a, internal political stuff going on, but yeah. I mean, that's a big point too. It just occurred to me if everybody here is, let's say around 30 or younger, if the Cylon War was 40 years ago, a lot of these people weren't even born when there was the Cylon War. Right. And right. so like, that's a big part of, I think, going into the show to remember is these are not hardened soldiers. These are people who have right. probably never seen combat before, you know, like he says, they've trained for it, but you know, it's not like these are any experienced, you know, right. people well, you, in the field. You get sort of the callous version of that. Um, you know, when, when uh, Tyrrell is saying, you know, there were a lot of rookies in there and Ty goes, well, nobody's a rookie now. Like yeah. they're, you know, they've had, uh, yeah. Yeah, there are no virgins on the ship, so to speak. I was trying to think of a, 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 I can tell what you were a, a, of a non-crude way to say that. Um, right, right. You know, so yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, and that's a great point. Like there, you know, you you do only have a couple, literally a couple of people who have seen before, and um, and there's that moment too when when uh, you know, Commander. Adama says, you know, brace for impact, my friend. And Ty says, oh, it's been a long time since I heard that. Like, mm -hmm. and when they were last there, they were the young ones, right? right. Like, they right. they wouldn't have been commanders and XOs. Like, they right. would have been right. the fighter pilots and, you know, yeah. I don't know what Ty would have been. But, you know, um, like, they're, yeah. you know, very different situation even in that uh, sense as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> oh my God. we have so much more to talk such about. A, it's uh, such a problem. The, um, the, well, we're, we're just going to go way long. We, um, we need to talk about Adama and Apollo too, a little bit. I yes. mean, we kind of hinted at it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that we need to say a ton of stuff, but you get, you get the conversation about, um, you know, about Zach and clearly Lee, you know, blames yeah. Uh, you know, his father for Zach's death, not, you know, directly, of course, but again, you know, there's the taking responsibility. Apparently, uh, Commander Adama had, you know, pulled some kind of strings or, or done something to perhaps help Zach pass, uh, you know, his training when he shouldn't have been. And, and I have to say the stuff we were talking about, about Ty and Starbuck, I think strengthens that argument, you know, that he says, like, you can see him doing that, like, you know, letting something slide for somebody that he, you know, has a soft spot for, you know, like, yeah. like, sure. even when he says, like, I didn't do anything for Zach that I wouldn't have done for anyone else. It's kind of like, that's probably true. <laughs> it's just that you'll pull strings for everybody rather than, you know. Uh, or, or or, is this Or at least for of, your favorites. Yeah, is this Adama's version of, you know, being self-delusional uh, or just self-deceptive or whatever you want to call it? Like is, sure. you know, maybe, maybe it's not literally anyone else, but yeah, like it's, there are people like Starbuck or 
his son Zach, you know, who he did do this sort of thing for. And and that's not to say that he didn't do like maybe he had other favorites, you know, going back, other cadets that he really liked to, you know, maybe he helped get through that. Yeah. You know, he shouldn't have, but yeah. So and I feel like it's important to see some plausibility in Lee's argument because otherwise he comes off as just a total bratty jerk. You know, he spends yeah. like he's about as smug as you can possibly no, I, be for, you know, the entire time he's on the ship. He clearly doesn't want to be there. He's not only, you know, rude to his father, he's rude to everybody. Like he doesn't even shake Tyrrell's hand when he gets off the plane. Like, right, you know, he has right. like a huge chip on his shoulder. And I feel like it's, the fact that he might have a point about his dad is like the one thing that makes you not totally like just dismiss him. I, I think, I think the way that he says everything and the fact that, uh, you know, commander Adama suddenly becomes official and dismisses him lends credence to Lee's argument. Like that, that feels to me that like he struck a bone and not Mm -hmm. like, not like Commander Adama doesn't dispute him there, right? Right? right like, right. like he, he command, you know. And and interesting because I never quite thought about it in this way, but there is it is almost you could almost look at uh, Commander Adama and Gaius Baltar as foils in that way, whereas mm. you know there is perhaps a certain amount of self deception and. Um, rack racking guilt you know both at the same time in in commander adama's response to lee in in you know by the by choosing not to address that accusation but also not to deny it right like there you know there's definitely a sense that I, i at least i got and i have gotten since the first time i saw it mm-hmm. um you know that that I think you're right. Like Lee definitely has a point and that Adama not only knows that, but believes it as mm-hmm. well. Like, yeah, again, like he's not the one maybe who, you know, put him in a specific fighter and sent him to whatever, you know, training accident or whatever that killed him. Yeah. You know, but the situation of him sort of greasing the wheels for Zach to get to where he was and, and, you know, apparently you know growing up uh you know when when his children were growing up captain or you know commander adama you know would say things like you know you haven't you're not a man until you you know whatever whatever the quote is that lee like lee clearly seems to be quoting his father at that point right right? right. so this is stuff he heard yeah you know so it you know it it was sort of indoctrinated into both of them you know Mm -hmm. both lee and zach from a young age and then you know when Zach looked like maybe he wasn't going to quite cut it on his own, Adama helps him out a little bit, you know, by smoothing the way for him. And that's Mm -hmm. like, it, it feels to me definitely that commander Adama is feeling that guilt of doing that. And that there seems to be actually quite a lot of authenticity to what he is saying. Yeah. And we mentioned to him kind of, skirting around it in his speech too like he the fact that he throws out his old speech to to talk kind of off the top of his head and what does he talk about taking responsibility for your children you know and like or the things that you create you know um and you know 
that, you know, him at least starting to maybe come to face that as a truth and not just write it off as mm. Lee's own, you know, grief or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and just to kind of finish with them, you get the, you know, you get the concern, but also there's still that tension at the end of like, is, is your ship all right? You know, like that really like passive aggressive way of asking if his son is still alive, you know? Um, yeah. And then ending with, you know, his grief at the, what appears to be the death of his second son, you know, when they see the explosion, you know, on the radar and everything. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, if he didn't have to f totally face his guilt up to that point, it certainly kind of puts him face to face with it by the end of the episode, I think. Definitely. Um, well, we do want to mention, we don't get a ton between Adama and Rosalind yet. Um, I mean, one of the main things we get is, again, going back to this idea of the difference of opinion on technology. Um, yeah, yeah. You get Adama's um, very Luddite views of there will be no, you know, networked computers and things, you know, advanced technology while I'm in control. And I mean, Rosalind, who's obviously at the start, she's still, you know, secretary of education. She's not in any sort of authority position yet necessarily, but so she's not thinking in terms of like, you know, national defense, but, you know, her sure. opinion is certainly much more liberal there. She's, she's just looking practically, you know, look, I'm in charge of the teachers. I'm in charge of, I suppose I, she has something to do with setting up the Galactica as a museum and a place of learning, like probably for kids to come and visit or something. Um, so what can we do to sort of practically help the teachers in their jobs? Um, yeah. But I don't know that she obviously doesn't feel as passionately about that as Adama does for good reasons, but you still get that sense of these two have ideological sort of differences. Um, mm. And their first thing they do is like fight, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, yeah. which is kind of important when you realize that as it goes on, they're going to become the two leaders of the show, like from the military and the civilian side, um, you know, and the first thing we see them do is sort of clash over their ideologies. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Is there anything else <laughs> to say about the two of them? Um no, I'm no. I mean, the, so you get the, yeah, you get the initial clash, and then you get her sort of defiance at the end. Um, yeah. And can't you like now she's technically over him at this point, right? Right. So, right. She um, pulls rank. <laughs> right. So yeah. so there is, yeah, and he doesn't take it seriously. <laughs> right. Um. At least it seems like like when he because yeah. he calls and who does he call? He calls his son like right. he doesn't call to talk to her as the president right right um so well yeah. and you get lee in the mix there too of his sort of instant respect for Rosalind, which contrasts his disrespect for his dad like you get this sense that i mean i think he really does respect Rosalind, but he also really enjoys sticking it to adama you know of oh i have i have sure. somebody else in authority who i can obey you know yeah that to me that seems more like you know, the cherry on top because like, 
Yeah. He does he does support Roslyn as, you know, in charge of at least that shit. Yeah, no, I don't think it's totally um, like it's before. not totally opportunistic. Yeah. Um but no, I think just he like, enjoys it. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I think he's impressed by, you know, her mastery in such a quick fashion of, you know, what's going on and, you know, what needs to be done. Yeah. Um and so he sort of at least at least it seems to me like he's sort of willing to see where she's going to take it. Um yeah. But yeah, yeah, when 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 like she is also defying his father, it's like, oh, all right. Yeah, this yeah. is good too. Like, like, I know I liked you for a reason. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. well, and it's like yeah, you you also get Doral doing the same thing as Adama, appealing to Lee's authority over Rosalind. So, you know, if he wanted to be, you know, vain about it, he absolutely could have tried to take control, but he he recognizes authority when he sees it um, and recognizes that she's doing a good job and there's no reason why she shouldn't be in charge. Um, and that's a great line when he kind of throws it back at Doral that, you know, the lady's in charge, you know, so, you know, tells him to kind of stick it with his uh, lack of um, confidence in her and everything. Um Yeah. What next? Um, well, I so Billy and we, Dee. We we talked. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. We should talk about them just at least briefly. Um, you get yeah. There's not the, too much to say yet, but um, you get sort of the looks between them, and um, you know, sort of, you know, it starts off when D walks by and sort of gives him a look and he looks back at her mm-hmm. and then it's like, then he's lost, <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, he's wandering around and wanders into the bathroom um, where she sort of is like, sort of giving him a hard time and making fun of him a little mm-hmm. bit, but also, you know, pointing out that like, he doesn't belong there, like mm-hmm. that there's, you know, he's clearly a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I don't know. Other than like, both of them are sort of in support roles. So you have Billy mm-hmm. as um, the sort of the assistant or secretary to Roslyn, um, and you have Dee, who's uh, like a communications officer or something to mm-hmm. um, you know in the in the CIC. Mm-hmm. Um, and interesting too that she seems not to have rank. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, she like you get. Uh, you know, like uh, right. She's not Adama, like in a, an officer's uniform. Yeah. She's yeah. Yeah, Adama calls you know uh, like Lieutenant Gaeta or you know Chief Tyrrell. Like he calls them right. by their rank. You know, lieutenant or chief or whatever. Um, and but she he calls D. And so mm-hmm. I you know I I forget why that is. I mean I guess she must just not be like I guess it's maybe a civilian. Yeah. Well, uh, I think she's like. I have, would have to look it up to see, like, what she... I think she's not an officer, whether that makes her, like, a private or something. Like, I think she's mm. definitely military, but she's not, like, an officer. But, or maybe, like, an NCO or something I, like that. But I, um, would, I would still expect... Like, it still seems odd to me that right, if she, she doesn't were military, have, like, a title. Because she, yeah. she would still have a rank of some kind, whether right. it's private or whatever. Right. So, I, you know, maybe whatever. It's, maybe it's more of Adama's sort of his kids, you know, that maybe D yeah. doesn't, she's, she's, 
she's D. She doesn't get called like a, you know, that's, there's something like a kind of an affectionate nickname because her name is actually like Duala. So that's D's not even really like, like D's the nickname, um, mm-hmm. you know? And so there's something kind of like, I don't know, informal about that, maybe because of who she is or their relationship yeah. or something. Um, um, but I, you know, so there's also, you know, talking about the lack of experience. I mean, you get, um, you know, her being the one who messages are being routed through, mm-hmm. you get sort of her emotion and, yeah. you know, the realness of it, you know, yeah. so to speak. Um, yeah. You know, as, as she's sort of passing on those messages. Yeah. Um, no, that's a good point. But, but, uh, you, you know, I, so, uh, messages don't pass through Billy in the same way, but you also get that same sense when he, you know, is listening to Rosalind and, and, you know, hears, you know, she gives sort of her announcement about, the attacks and stuff. And then you get his story of his parents moving mm-hmm. and, you know, to be closer to his sister and grandchildren and stuff. And, right. Um, right. You He's know, have, have that same sense yeah. of emotion, you know, that you get to see the personal aspect. I mean, you get, you get, yeah. all, you know, all the people on the ship sort of saying, what about, what about, blah, 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 blah. But it's, right. you know, the frantic, like whatever. He's just sort of that one that's like, yeah, wow, this really happened. And it right. was my situation. Right. He's the only one that we really hear about their family in particular. Um, and I think it's something that's easy to forget that like every single person on the ship has lost mm-hmm. everyone they know, you know, and because I don't think they talk about it much, um, you know, and I don't know whether that's a function of the writing or whether like it's because they're sort of supposed to be stoic soldiers and they don't talk about things like that. But um, yeah, Billy's the only one who really talks about like, Oh, he's grappling with the idea that his whole family is gone. Everybody he knows is gone. Um, And I think it's important, too, that Billy and Dee are these two characters that share that little moment. And they're both, like you said, kind of close subordinates to Adama and Rosalind. So they're sort of these little, you know, if not like their direct assistants, they're kind of one of the people who's closest to them and kind of, you know, Dee's even the person who, like, takes dictation from Adama to do his announcements and correspondence and everything. So you kind of almost get that, like, secretary role for her, too. Sure, um, sure. So, yeah, like, obviously there's, like, a nice... They have a kind of parallel relationship that mirrors, I think, Adama and Rosalind's, in a way. Um, yeah. Okay. I feel like so we had on our list to talk about Starbuck and Ty. I feel like we kind of covered them a little bit. Did we have anything mm. else for them um, as a no. as a pair or individually? I mean, so one thing I think is worth mentioning is how part of their goading of each other is Starbucks mentioning Ty's wife and like her kind of suggestive comments about, you know, Oh, talk to her recently. Like, you know, there's, there's rumors going on that she's alluding to and giving him a hard time about, and he takes the bait obviously as he's meant to. So, um, yeah, again, that sense of like, 
this has been going on for a while. They know the dirt on each other. They don't like each other. Um, and they're kind of waiting for any excuse to sort of let that break out in a fist fight. Um, yeah. And then you get Ty later on uh, burning a hole through the eye of his, you know, the picture of, you know, his wife and everything. Um, you know, so yeah. kind of confirming that whatever Starbuck is alluding to, there's some sort of fraught relationship with him and his wife. Um, right. Because I don't think he'd be burning the picture if there wasn't something <laughs> right. going on. No, you know? yeah, just like with these sort of accusations um, and Adama, you know, realizing that they're true. Yeah. Um, you get the same sense with Ty and Starbuck. <laughs> like, definitely that she clearly hits home. And, and you know, even Adama says, like, you know, okay, that was sort of uncouth of her to allude to, you know, to talk about your marital problems. And, like, so there doesn't, you know, as two, like, longtime friends, like, they don't seem to have secrets between them. So Adama right. sort of, you know, is, is giving credence to Starbucks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, claims there, too. So, yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I mean... They're both very strong personalities, yeah. right? So right, so they um, clash. They clash, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's there's also that sense of you know the uh, you know the fact that like they it's like each of them hates what the other stands for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're both really blunt and. Uh, you know, straightforward or whatever in their own way. But, mm -hmm. you know, they're also very different. Um, you know, ties that Ty has sort of that sneaky, you know, alcoholic thing going, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's everybody, you know, it's like an open secret. Everybody knows that mm -hmm. uh, he drinks a lot and whatever, but, you know, he's not, um, He's, you know, he's not going to uh, sort of, well, I, I feel like I'm fumbling around a bit, but like, you know, Starbucks just like, let's call a spade a spade, right? Like you're right. a drunk and deal with it. I might be, um, you know, crass and, you know, willing to punch someone in the face because I don't like them, but at least I don't, you know, pretend to be someone I'm not kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's funny because in some ways they are very alike, you know, like you said, like the bluntness, but like, you know, I mean, I don't know that we have enough data yet to call Starbuck an alcoholic, but you kind of see her also like she's, you know, kind of, you know, she's certainly not a prude, you know, she's, she's hard drinking and, and smoking and fighting at the table, you know, so there's a sense in which they're both, you know, um, you know, kind of aggressive people in a similar way and both very mm -hmm. physical, um, you know, quick to kind of jump into the fight and, you know, quick to anger. Um, yeah. You know, and you get Starbucks, like, physicality throughout. Like, you know, you get, like, she's running when we first see her and she's doing push-ups in the cell and everything. Um, so she's sort of 
most of what we see of her is like being a very active, you know, kind of physical person, I think. So, Starbuck and Apollo. Um, again, we covered a bit of it. There's, uh, you know, you know the things that they talk. Mostly, what they talk about is Zach. And again, that that interesting thing with the Dama of Starbuck being closer to him than than Lee is. Um, hmm. You know, and that could be for a lot of reasons. Maybe she just is his type of person, or Maybe because she serves on, you know, Galactica and Lee doesn't, um, you know, and then you also get references to her having had a relationship with Zack too, which kind of could put her as like, you know, under the role of some sort of like surrogate daughter, um, you know, almost, almost literally, not just like in spirit, but, you know, this could have been like an actual father daughter relationship that that never happened or something sure um so you know she's the one who's sort of helping him through his grief and being very understanding and um not she doesn't seem to blame adama for uh for what happened um yeah no that's true um yeah, and we only—I mean, we only get the vague hints about, well, sort of vague hints about. Um, <laughs> can I be any vaguer? They're sort of vague, um, <laughs> you know, uh, about Starbucks' relationship to Zach. Um, you know, when when Lee says, you know, oh, Zach was my brother, and she's like, well, what was he to me? You know, or mm -hmm. he was nothing to me, or whatever, you know, something along those lines, and. But we don't actually know. <laughs> We're like, no, but what was he to you? Yeah. Um, lovers, maybe, imply something mm -hmm. more. Um, and, like, I mean, I think we find out more as the series goes on. So, I mean, we'll revisit that, of course. But, um, yeah, I just, there's that, you know, there is that thing of, you know, people who maybe don't, necessarily like each other but um you know but perhaps they uh you know they lost someone in common and so there's that mm -hmm. bond you know between them even though you know we get starbucks threat to hit another superior asshole mm -hmm. um you know because of the way sort of lee's addressing it but um but you do get a sense like even you know before that happens you get starbucks saying hey your dad's okay and like we know well we find out that lee doesn't really care how his dad's doing but i feel like that's a moment where starbucks being genuine like she's she's trying to get across to lee like you know don't be too hard on yourself or your dad like you know mm -hmm. there's there's both you know both of you sort of deserve a break and you know maybe it's time to move on a little bit even like mm -hmm. um so i don't know i just feel like that there it, as much as like there is sort of between them and there's a lot of sarcasm and um you know other stuff sort of going on between the two of them i feel like there there are at least a few really genuine moments between the two of them in that scene so mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that 
of all of them, she's the one who, you know, is the most empathetic maybe towards other people, you know, whereas like Lee and Adama and Ty and everybody is sort of stuck in their own, you know, how they see things. Starbuck is actually the one who's in that moment trying to reach out and understand other people and sure. get them to understand each other and maybe, you know, move on or forgive each other or whatever. Um, okay. How about, <laughs> oh my God, don't even look at the clock. Um, how about some of the other, uh, pilots, uh, Boomer and Hilo? Um, I want to point out something we haven't mentioned, which is the fact that Boomer and Starbuck were both originally men in the original series sure. and have been uh, swapped, you know, for, for some ladies. So that's cool. And, you know, I think there's a lot to say about like gender roles in this show, um, but that they give, you know, they take two characters who are important and have you know, masculine qualities, like they're fighter pilots and, you know, Starbuck is like, you know, the hard, you know, drinking rakish cigar smoking, you know, um, type. And they pretty much retain all those. I mean, I don't know the old series too well, but my impression is that they didn't really do much to change the characterization. They just sort of, you know, uh, made the, the role, you know, for women. So, um, but they didn't necessarily feminize them to extreme sure. degrees. Um, so, you know, I think that's a pretty interesting, uh, and very welcome twist that they did. Um, yeah. And I like the name Boomer for this <laughs> skinny rook female pilot. Like that's like way too big a name for her. Like, you know, <laughs> sure. Um, sure. Like maybe it was almost a ironic designation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I want so. Yeah, I don't know what the name implies. Um, I mean, if if we even need to get into uh, name symbolism, have, yeah, <laughs> it, it, as if we don't have enough to talk about already. Yeah, um, I don't know that we need to necessarily have that name symbolism to talk about. Um, but yeah, like maybe maybe it could theoretically have something to do more with um you know like her uh uh, uh communication support like you know mm. she's a boomer because she's the one sort of broadcasting the signal or something sure like that. yeah that makes sense yeah and i think that's good to point out too that we get different roles for the different pilots so you know boomer's not a a viper pilot she's a raptor pilot so she's doing more so less of the combat um yeah. and more well, of the like scouting and communications and hauling you know equipment and all that kind of thing right um right so you know they even have like different roles within their you know uh i guess like department or whatever um yeah and, and i mean you get the very important points that boomer is one of the rooks so even among this very young crew she's identified as a rookie you know someone who's new and doesn't you know have a lot of experience um you know and you kind of get different perspectives from you know we see her most with hilo and with tyrell um and hilo as her kind of co-pilot is you know 
defending her and saying like, you know, well, you know, yeah, the the gimbal's bad and, you know, like encouraging her and telling her it's going to be okay. And then you've got uh, Tyrrell who's, you know, not, he's not hearing it, that it's his fault, that the equipment, you know, he's checked the equipment, the equipment's fine. And the problem is, you know, boomers piloting skills, Mm. Um, you know, which they argue all the way into the storeroom where they, you know, proceed to, you know, rip each other's clothes off. So, you know, kind of an interesting, I don't know if I want to call it a three-way relationship, but like, you know, there's an interesting sort of triangle there between Boomer's relationships between Hilo and Tyrrell. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting too that Boomer's the senior officer, you know, like she's the lieutenant and he's, you know, he's chief of his deck, but he's not, you know, she outranks right. she outranks him just right. you know by virtue of her rank, and, if not and, her experience. Um, right, and so and maybe to get into the, you know, a different aspect, uh, you know, he therefore calls her sir. Right. Um. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know the point also made that this is, you know, it's not clear to me if if absolutely no like you know what if any like romantic relationships are allowed on the ship but it definitely seems that you know uh you know having secret you know uh sex in the store closet with your senior officer is probably not allowed um so you kind of get them in this you know uh breaking rank kind of clandestine relationship and everything yeah no i mean that's almost certainly true like especially especially in a situation where you know they work that closely together so you Mm -hmm. have um you know the pilot the officer pilot who you know is like you said like technically over the chief of the you know hangar deck um you know, it might be different if they were like assigned to different parts of the ship or something, but like right. Right. they would they, they would be together, right there. Yeah. And so and you know, and so in um I don't I mean I don't know the subtleties of American law, but I know that at least in some countries, like even even just having a higher rank than someone and, you know, having an intimate relationship like that can be, you know, grounds for um uh you know, some sort of uh what do you call it? Just like coercion or inducement, mm-hmm. you know, to, um, I, you know, basically it's illegal. So, right, you know, right. um, yeah. So you, you know, I don't know what the ins and outs here are for law and practice on there, but they also, I mean, it seems to be like Hilo seems to know what's going on. Yeah. Like you kind of get, yeah, the look get a little face. shake of the head. Yeah. And yeah. And, like, yeah, his sort of, like, begrudging playing along, like, yeah, yeah, the part didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Um, But, yeah, they're clearly putting on a big show. And you have to wonder, like, how many other people know, you know, like, this is what it is. But but they're at least they're at least creating the theater to, Mm -hmm. you know, make it look like they're just arguing and don't like each other and. Yeah. You know, which fits in with if if 
if it starts from the top down, that kind of fits in with Adama's culture of turn the other way, <laughs> you know, like as you know, for like, we're not in the habit on this ship of confronting people over things if they're like perceived to be like not that big a deal. Um, you know, I don't know that that means that Adama knows about their relationship. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but, um, you know, that seems to be not uncommon on here, you know, whether it's Starbucks fighting or ties drinking or, you know, these secret relationships, there's a lot of stuff going on that probably shouldn't be, but it's being sort of tolerated and overlooked. Mm. Um, Okay, and I want to oh, stop that. Stop, I see you looking at the clock. Um, <laughs> um, for Hilo and Boomer too, I mean, we mentioned the fact that he gives up his seat. So he, you know, to, she's not happy about that, but he, uh, right. you know, and you kind of see her, how upset she is to leave him behind, um, but he stays behind. And I wanted to mention too that um, just to kind of let, uh, Tomo Pennicut sell it in like one minute. He Hilo wasn't supposed to be a a regular character until they mm. saw that scene, and they were like, "Well, we have to bring this guy back." Like he was so his kind of brave, you know, uh, stance at the end was moving enough that they decided to sort of keep him in the story. Um, so there you go. Yeah. Um, and I like stuff like that because. I feel like this is one of those shows that pays attention to what the actors are doing and allows the actors to lead where the story goes a lot of the times. Um, sure. And if they find that somebody is good, then they'll make, give them a bigger part. So, um, you know, it's a kind of a good yeah. sort of meritocracy with the acting. Well, it's, you know, like what happened with Spike too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> Who is still around and kicking. Um, but anyway, yeah, we'll talk about him next week. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, there's so much more that we still have to talk about, but maybe some of this other stuff, um, like with the language and the religion and stuff, we can save for sure. the next episode so that we, <laughs> so that we aren't grossly over time. We yeah. Just, you know, yeah. No. And that's true. I mean, we, and maybe some of the like stuff about the Galactica too. I think this won't take me too long. I do want to, cause while we're on the topic, we have talked about um, going with the characters and going with the different worlds within the ship. I do kind of want to finish out because I think this is where a lot of the other kind of minor characters fit in who we don't necessarily need to talk about like at length. But um, for me, like you said, when you go through a door and you're in a different part of the ship, you are in a completely different world with a different tone. And I like how, you know, the characters are distinct and yet, you know, they all kind of feel like they belong to the part of the ship they belong to. So, mm. um, you know, for me, you know, in the CIC, like besides Adama and Ty, you know, you've got Gaeta and D as the kind of main people there. And it's, you know, I want to make a point that I feel like they're all professional and competent in their own way, but in different styles. So like, you know, mm. the CIC is very much like, you know, it's all about, it's so formal and so precise and very educated sure. and it's all like you know it's it's you got to get yeah. the you got to get the numbers right and they're they're making big tactical decisions and they're 
right. doing communications and all these. It's a very cerebral kind of like, like it's yeah. the brain, it's the brain of the ship, you know? Yeah. Um, and you mentioned formal too. Like you, you definitely get a sense of like protocol right yes. on, on, on in the CSC. So you have not just like, not even just like military protocol, which is, is certainly part of it, but you get like, it's almost quasi-social protocol as well. So mm -hmm. you get like, Dee's the one who makes the call to Lee and then is like, you know, Galactica actual will, you know, speak to you now kind of thing. Right. Like, you know, you get this, right. you know, Adama could just as easily have made that call himself, but that's right. not protocol. That's not like, how that's we do not, it here. That's yeah. not how it's done. Yeah. And, you know, same thing with like, um, you know, when Adama leaves and he put, you know, puts, you know, whoever, whether it's Ty or Gator or whoever, like in, mm -hmm. in the commanding, you know, so-and-so has the con kind of thing, you know, like, right, right. like there's that formal announcement and whatever. It's, it's not just like, oh, well, you happen to know whoever the highest ranking yeah, person I'll be back in 20 is, minutes. Yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. is, is the one you listen to. It's no, this, you know, there's, there's sort of that um, cadence and, and, you know, again, protocol to it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and on that point too, you know, at the very end when the, when there's the explosion and everything, like the fact that like Gaeta has to report that his son just died and it's like, I have to do this. Like there's that sense of like, it's my job to read this out, but like everybody knows what just happened. Like, I don't really want to do it. But again, like you said, protocol dictates that I have to say this out loud and then, sure. you know, it's really awkward. So yeah, very kind of intensely formal and, you know, there's an exact right way to do everything. Um, and that, which makes sense because that's where they're making a lot of the important decisions. So you can't afford to make any mistakes. Um, so huge contrast then with the hangar deck, which is sort of, if, if the, CIC is the brain, you know, the hangar deck is all physical and it's all like, it's, it's mechanics it's, and deckhands yeah. and, you know, again, very good at their jobs, but much more, you get a sense like working class kind of people, you know, um, uh -huh. who are kind of really good at like fixing engines and, you know, all those sorts of manual yeah. things. Um, and even and, like, and, and, and the tinkerers, like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's not just like working class, but you know, maybe right, they, like they work all day in a factory, yeah. but then also, you know, go home and like work on their cars. Sure, you know? So sure. it's like, it's not yeah. just that they're working class, but that they enjoy that type of work, you right. know, like. That right. Is, and that's, yeah. And it's not necessarily to say anything about uh, their social class, but like, this is the kind of people that are attracted to these different, you know, mm -hmm. uh, worlds. So, but even like, the lack of formality with like Tyrrell, like yelling at his pilots and yelling at his crew and like, he loves them, but he's also like, you know, can kind of, you know, well, he's, and, uh, and, and well, and just his like saying things like, you know, we're going to kick silent ass. Like you can't, Adama would never say that in the yeah. CIC, you know, that's not um, how they talk up there. So. And, and although like, as we pointed out, you know, although like Boomer and all the pilots and whatever are, you know, outrank him, like you said, like he yells at them. Like there's yeah. like, you, you know, it's not just that there's no protocol. It's that like, you know, even the idea of rank down there, or, you know, unless like Adama is there or whatever, sure. you know, it, it, it doesn't have the same sort of weight. Like, yeah. you know, okay. You might be 
a captain and or a lieutenant and technically above me, but this is my right. hanger yeah. deck and you're going right. to listen to what I say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and right. You know, in that same token, you don't get sort of the cool, calm, collected uh, commands that you get in the CIC, right? Mm -hmm. Like where, you know, Adama is very precise, you know, do this and do this and, you know, get Starbuck out of the brig and, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's, it's, all right, guys, we got this. Well, you know, right, this right. is what we do. Go at it. And then like yeah. everyone runs around and <laughs> yeah. does whatever it is, but they all know what they're doing. It's not, mm -hmm. it, it's not chaos. No, it's, it's, you know, they know what they're doing. It's just, they don't have to be told. And, and it's not within sort of the tradition or, you know, uh, protocol again of, of what they need to do. They just all know what to do because they do it. You know, yeah. and that's that's their job to know what to do and to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely like 180 degrees mm -hmm. different from the CIC. Um, yeah. And I guess to finish with the pilots, you know, maybe there's somewhere in the middle, like there's more of a sense of hierarchy there. Like you get the before he gets killed, the CAG sort of briefing the pilots on their mission and everything. And um, obviously they have to obey rank because they're the ones out in the field doing like the actual fighting but you you're the they're the ones you see off duty you know playing cards drinking getting into fights with each other um, right i mean ty is a part of that but like you kind of feel like he fits in there maybe even better than he fits in in the cic um hmm. you know sure. like he seems more like aligned with that kind of you know way and they they are kind of like you know, of all of the characters, the most like the jocks, you know, these are the ones who sure. were, you know, who were, who are athletic and, you know, are kind of, everybody's technically a soldier, I guess, since they're on the ship, but they're the ones who are the real combat soldiers yeah. who are out, you know, fighting and, well, and they, you know, they, in the field. You know, they're, so if, if you have the working class, you know, hangar deck, you have, these are these are the professional skilled workers, right? They're mm -hmm. they're the doctors who, uh, you know, have a particular skill, but maybe don't work as long of hours, right? Like so, right. like when they're needed, they're really needed, but they have a lot of downtime, right. you know. And at least that's sort of the sense you get, like you said, like they have they have sort of their own, like they get the comfy chairs, you know, yeah. and they get like, yeah, the place where they can go hang out and. Yeah. drink and play cards and and whatever um and you know maybe technically that relaxation area could be for anyone but you don't really see like the hangar deck people there right mm -hmm. like it it is right. it's you know formal or not it's where the pilots go um right. and there is that sort of division there yeah i i think you're right i think we can probably I think there's stuff in here that we can save for uh, future right. episodes. Um, well, on that note, I mean, I, you know, we're picking up right where we left off, right? Like, so it's this is the second part of the miniseries for the next time. That yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. get to. So, um, and and I think you know, I don't really care that much if we went over because this is the kind of stuff I think it's good to talk about. And now that we've talked about it, we don't have to talk about it as much anymore unless it's relevant. Um, right. you know, all that kind of like getting to know the world and everything. Um, sure. you know, now that we've discussed it, I think 
it doesn't, you know, have to be sort of commented on every time it happens. Um, all right. Let's talk about Angel at least for a little bit. Yeah. Well, and so we may be able to go fairly quickly through this one because we get, you know, we're coming off of one cliffhanger into another. Into so, another, yeah. You know, there's a lot of setup here. And and I, I said that, like, these last four episodes kind of work as a single story yeah. arc throughout the way. And I do want to just sort of point out that actually – um, it's, I, I can't remember if I said this before, but it's generally, uh, this whole Pylea arc is, is really well considered, um, mm -hmm. slayage.com, uh, not, not the journal, but you know, the website, um, yeah. that, that was sort of a fan site, um, had ranked it, um, I think number nine in the top 10 angel stories, um, okay. you know, story arcs. So yeah, you know, I mean, generally, as a as a complete arc, you mean like um, the four episodes together? I don't, you know, I don't remember if it was the arc or this episode specifically. I, okay. I think I think it was the arc. I think okay. it might have been the last three. I don't think it included uh, last episode. Um, but right, you know, these last three all sort of taking place in Pylea. Um, sure, or at least you know partially. Um, Anyway, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, without getting into any, like, spoilers or anything. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I, and I, I like them. I, I like the, you know, uh, Angel is generally a pretty dark show. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that you get here is that even though it's, like, quote, a demon dimension or whatever, like, it's actually kind of bright and fun. And, sure. you know, um, <laughs> you get, like, Angel being the one to, you know, sort of jump around with joy at being able to be out in the sun and yeah. that kind of stuff. So I, I do like that's happened a couple times. Like when like there's the other was it the last episode or the one before where they go he goes to Cordy's audition and he's in the fake sun and everything. Right. Like I like how consistently the presence of sunlight transforms his whole personality. <laughs> like he's basically a different person when you just like get right. him. Like how much of have we said this before? How much of Angel's personality is like seasonal affective disorder? <laughs> like never <laughs> right. seeing the sunlight and just being like so crabby because he's stuck in the dark all the time. <laughs> um, and it kind of seems like if he just gets a little bit of like, you know, some of the vitamins that you get. A little vitamin you know, D, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, then he's like a whole other person. Um, so, yeah, it is. I did want to bring that up because that is pretty funny. And he keeps like bringing it like he doesn't, right. it's not just like, Oh, I'm not on fire. That's great. It's like, <laughs> it's like two minutes later. Can we just talk about how much fire I'm not on? Right. Um, in case or, you forgot. And then we, we need some branches to cover the car. Oh, look, there's something that's patch of sun over there. Yeah. I'll go get them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sort of prances over to the, the thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. it's funny. Um, Good stuff. so, all right. No, and this is a pretty, this is a pretty funny episode. And there is like, it is a pretty bright, sunny world. Um, and, you know, a kind of funny kind of pseudo medieval culture and everything. Um, but uh, so I kind of wanted to start with Cordy because she spends a lot of it sort of well, pretty much all the episode separated from the group. Um, and it kind of picks up where she left off with, you know, realizing she's alone in this 
um, you know, in Pylea, and they like they clarify that going through the portal doesn't necessarily mean that people will stay together. So um, it's not like Landoc is, you know, just over there. Like he's who knows where, you know, in right. could be in another part of the planet for all we know. Um, so, you know, she's truly by herself, um, you know, and runs into first this kind of, you know, demon ish sort of monster which growls at her and then turns out to be sort of a sort of a dog you know kind of right, right. you know she has this terrifying run. Yeah. yeah yeah she has this sort of terrifying run for her life and then of course it catches her but then just sort of licks her and sniffs her and everything um yeah and gets called off by um you know one of the other demons who then proceeds to sort of lasso her and take her to market to sell her um as a cow so right um it's funny like people seem to kind of be used as slaves and they kind of know they seem to understand that they have speech and they're not just you know dumb animals but also there's this consistent like reference to calling them cows like you know like they're just beasts of burden and um don't have Maybe they can talk, but they don't have sort of higher functional intelligence or rights like like we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good boy, you found me a cow. Yeah. Um, and uh, and their economy is pretty basic too, right? Like they still barter. For, yeah. You know, I'll give you a pig and a pint. Uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that's their. And yeah. of course, of course, Cordy's offended. A, yeah. One pig. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't know to whether to be more offended at being sold or whether she didn't get fetch a good enough bargain. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah um, and, and her appeal, I'm an American and I have rights like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, a, a meaningless thing in, in this culture and everything. Um, yep. Um, although they have enough technology to create these, uh, collars that they put on them like the sure. zapper collars um sure yeah which makes you wonder like it did did they come from somewhere else like hmm. Hmm, i don't know i don't know I, i'm not trying to apply anything there i just it, it is like the most technologically advanced part of their uh society it seems right, right. Um, everything else is sort of feudal um, yeah yeah um yeah i hadn't really thought of that um so yeah she gets sold and you know is doing her job mucking out stables and (laughs) is like in her filthy rags and you know dirt smudged face and everything um and so she well first when she's in the market we see um another human girl sort of watching her from you know behind something um and you know if we're paying attention we recognize amy acker um yeah and who we saw at least like images of in the last episode as this character fred who was a librarian who got sort of sucked through a portal and and everything so um i don't think cordy ever puts two and two together because 
Um, no. She doesn't really ever see Fred or maybe doesn't right. even really know what she looks like that well anyway. Um, and yeah, like she just kind of, she gets the idea that it's another person who's been stranded here, but doesn't make the connection that this is the one they were uh, searching for earlier on. Sure. Um, yeah, and Fred talks about, like, kind of gives an idea of what Cordy can expect. So Fred has presumably been here since, you know, for five years, you know, since she went missing, or at least mm -hmm. five years in Earth time. Who knows what that is in, like, you know, right. demon translated, like, you know, yeah. Narnia, Narnia time shift time or something. <laughs> yeah, no, longer and, for all we know. Right, and we've already seen that, you know, that that happens. Um, yeah. Depending on the universe or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it interested me about like Fred's kind of personality because I don't know much, like I don't really know anything about the character, um, like what, uh, what role she has to play or how much she's involved. Like I, I but I think I know that she's a major character, like that she'll continue to be on the show for, a while at least to some extent um so i was kind of interested and surprised to see her kind of be portrayed as you know sort of crazy as she is that mm. like you know you get the sense that she's been sort of living here so long and has been isolated from other people and probably very despairing and lonely and has gone slightly off her rocker a little bit like she's 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 not totally She's not insane, but there's something kind of like not quite right, she's, you know? Yeah, but she's not sane either. <laughs> no, no. She says, I'm not crazy. Well, uh, crazy, but I'm not wrong. Um, so like right. she's she's saying the right thing. She's making sense, but that doesn't mean she's not a little crazy too. Um, you know, and even just like how confused she is about I was born here. I mean, not really. I just think sometimes I was. So like that she's been here so long that she's begun to be confused even about who she is or where she came from. Yeah. Um, but she's with it enough to recognize that Cordy's from the same place that she is and to warn her about what will happen. Um, and, and smart enough to disable her own collar. Yeah. So that it can't yep. be, you know, used to stop her. Yeah. And, um, and brave enough to, to dare to like run away from her own owners and talk to, you know, another slave and try to sort of help her or escape or whatever. So yeah. she's not, she's not, you don't get the sense that she's completely, you know, beaten into submission yet. Um, like there's still, she may be kind of cracking, but there's still a lot of kind of defiance in her and everything. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, so, but they catch her and they sort of drag her away. So we don't know yet what happens. So. Yeah, no, still a, still a mystery with Fred. I, I think we'll see her again, I assume, in One Piece. So. Um, Perhaps. Shrug from you. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a fairly safe assumption. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, so you get her being taken away, but then you also get 
Cordy having a vision. Yeah. Uh, which turns out uh, to be maybe a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. And they take her and subject her to tests. We don't know what sort of tests, ultimately. Um, the good news is, at the end, she seems fine. So, like, right, whatever right. whatever those tests were, right. they didn't seem to have a lasting effect. Right. Um, no, but you do get the sense that the tests are... Yeah. Well, they, like, take her to, like, a dungeon or a basement or whatever, and there's, like, sharp implements and, you know... Right. Right. Certainly threat threatful or threatening... Uh, <laughs> man, I'm tired. Threatful? Threatening... Um, you know, things that are implied anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, apparently having the site, like confirming that she uh, is someone who is cursed means that she gets to be Queen Cordy. <laughs> Queen C, as her license plate once <laughs> uh, declared. That's right. I forgot that. That's funny. Um, yeah. I yeah. Mean, the, I, the venerable, I, the venerable monarch of Pylea, general of the ravenous legion, eater of our enemy's flesh, prelate of the sacrificial blood rites, and the sovereign proconsul of death. So I don't know that she had all that in mind when she had her license plate made, but right. um, you know, it's only been a matter of time. <laughs> Cordy always knew she was a queen. It just, you know. Yeah, she just had to go to Pylea to, for it to be acknowledged. So that's interesting. Like, so we don't know yet, obviously, like why that's the case. Um, but it seems like there's obviously, you know, um, you know, uh, they decide she's afflicted with this curse. So the tests prove that she has the curse of foresight. But yeah, like you said, apparently this is a good thing and this is a thing to be worshipped. And um you know, and they set her on high because of it. So what does it mean that she's afflicted, but also that means she's their ruler? Um, don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it, it, what we know with the, uh, with Lorne and his sort of using his sort of insight into people, uh, you know, not for not for evil, but for good and to help them, you know, not to be a hunter, but to be a helper of people. It's kind of, it'll be interesting, I think, to see like what, um, what kind of emphasis, what is it about like Cordy having like these visions that, you know, makes her sort of, I don't know, so worshipful in their yeah. culture. Yeah. Well, and you know, so here's another thought, too, since you brought up Lauren. Um, he goes to see his friend Aggie, who is apparently like a 1-800 or 1-900, you know, uh, psychic line yeah. uh, person who actually is psychic. So that's OK. Mm -hmm. right? um, so he goes to see her and. She tells him that if he doesn't go with them, Cordy won't be rescued. So, mm. which is interesting when you think about how the episode ends of, does Cordy need rescuing? And what's, you know, what's really sort of the role that they're each playing here? Sure. Um, 
and I, I mean, it's cliffhanger, so I'm not necessarily saying we have to answer that, but I just want to sort of put that in the context too of, you know, mm-hmm. Lauren being there is apparently a critical part of their rescuing Cordy, but like, Cordy seems to be doing fine on her own at this point. So <laughs> what what does the rescue in that circumstance, you know, look like uh, would be the question. Right, right. So to stay on this subject of Lauren, um, you know, because we're kind of getting a look at his home world and everything. Um, yeah. You know, I, some of it is is carryover from the last one, like his, his absolute at first refusal to even entertain the notion of going back. Mm. Um, you know, he, he kind of counsels them not to go, but he really doesn't want to go himself. Um, you know, which of never, 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 which never did you not understand that sort of thing. Um, sure. And yeah, again, with, with, his psychic friend, Aggie, it's interesting again, that his sort of faith in her as a psychic, that that's sort of a thing in his culture, apparently is like respect for people with foresight. Um, right. And it kind of makes sense to me that like, there's, if, if, if I believed in like, if I believed in psychic phenomena in this way, it would make sense to me that, um, he has to make a decision before she can read like, Mm. like as long as he's confused and reluctant, she can't get a clear sense of, you know, his future. Um, that it's like until he, you know, so he has to decide to go. Otherwise she can't tell them where the right, you know, hotspots are or whatever. Um, Mm. so it becomes this thing of not just being compelled to go, but if you want them to go, you have to go too because they can't get there. Like they literally can't get there without you. Um, so it kind of forcing him to do that thing that he doesn't want to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to bring up to the, the title over the rainbow. You mentioned the um, wizard of Oz connections in these episodes and, you know, you get Cordy clicking her heels and everything. Um, yeah. But it's interesting that it's Lauren's, you know, he's away from home and he doesn't want to, it's not about, there's no place like home. Lauren's feels the opposite, you know, like all I want to do is get away from home. Sure. Um, so yeah, kind of a reversal for him. Yeah. So for the others, Angel, sorry, I'm like, blasting through this (laughs) no it's all right because yeah we've been going for a long time um so for angel and and again it's it's a it's a you know transitory episode like yeah 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 you know it's it's a lot of like oh let's find the right spell and oh let's go through this portal and oh let's walk over here and no let's walk over there like sure so I, i don't i don't know that there's a ton of yeah, character development, yeah, yeah. especially with Angel Wesley and Gun. Like, yeah, it you know, you get, you know, Angel being determined to get Cordy back, but you know, he can't really do anything. Like, you know, his solution is, are the batteries dead in this book? Yeah. You know, like, like he yeah. doesn't know what he's doing. He's out of out of his depth 
um, there. You know, Wesley is actually the one who has to figure out all the stuff. Um, and then with Lauren's help, you know, they find a new portal. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you mean he actually says Eureka? Right. <laughs> um, um, yeah. And I mean, with Gun- yeah, or, or like the, the, you know, um, uh, the device of, Oh, it, you know, if we're enclosed by metal on four sides, it's like, there's sure. a, there, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in, in that, you know, group in this episode of just like busyness to like move the plot along a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or fill up the plot a bit. Like I do feel like some of that aspect of this episode is, is a little um, basic. You know, not bad, but it's just like, sure. you know. Sure. No, it's about moving pieces to where we, it's one of those episodes right. where it's like, okay, we need to get these people over here so that we can do the next thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even with Gunn, I mean, it's a pretty big turning point for Gunn in this episode about deciding at first to not go with them and to stay with his crew and then changing his mind. But like, even that, it's not like we get a lot of interior development. I mean, no, you, he went away. He thought about it. He changed his mind. Like (laughs) that's about as much like, right. He apparently heard the message that angel left. Right. Right. Um, Right. And And let's be honest, not the first time that gun has gone away and decided to come back. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah. So yeah, even that is not like a, as big of a character moment as it might seem. Um, so yeah um i mean so we get these new lawyers yeah who turn up um and one of them is Jin from lost <laughs> right um so yay I, daniel day kim i welcome I did, to angel <laughs> i did mention to you that we would have another lost actor appear yes um and i correctly predicted that you would not be able to guess no which no. one no, I had no idea. I think I guessed like one or two people and I was wrong. But um, yeah, good to see him here. I like him a lot. So um, yeah. hope we get to see more of him. I think I did not guess him, but I do like the casting of him as a kind of slick lawyer. I think he suits that part pretty well. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, the other guy doesn't even really say anything. Um, no, but I literally wrote wrote gavin park and the other lawyer like, yeah notes, yeah right? i wrote like gavin park and like with partner um so <laughs> plus one plus one um actually i did write down his name is mr hayes but um, oh, wow. anyway um so they just come to tell uh angel of wolfram and hart's latest evil plan which is to buy the hotel out from under him <laughs> I love I love that this is their evil plan. We're just going to buy yeah. your building. Yep. So you can't work there anymore. Yep. Yep. See how you like that, Angel. Because in L.A., they, you know, Angel couldn't possibly find another building, you know, yeah. to work out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Angel kind of scares them away for the moment. But, you know, they're kind of, they're working on their paperwork in the background and, and they'll be back. And what, I, what I'm interested in is that... Uh, you know, <laughs> all right. So they, you know, Gavin and his plus one come to, um, you know, assess or, you know, whatever the hotel. But, you know, one, clearly there was no like prior notice. I feel like 
legally one would have to do that. Like, you know, if my, if, if my landlord were to like start showing my apartment because I was moving out or something like you can't just walk into somebody's house where they're still living there, even if, you know, technically you own it. Like, right, right. if they're renting it from you, then yeah, they're renting it's their it property. From you. Like, it's their property. yeah, but these are um, evil lawyers. Oh, right, right. <laughs> no, I, I realize this, but but it's just that thing of like, then he goes, "We'll notify the real estate company of your non-compliance." So what? They're the real estate company. They don't own the building, right? You know, like, come on. Anyway, no, I mean I, you do get it's it's. There's a fair amount of just intimidation going on. It's not even yeah. about can we do what we say we're going to do. It's about let me just turn up and give you an idea of what we might do and put some ideas into your head and give you a hard sure. time and distract you from all the other things you should be thinking of and right. all that. Bur- you know, bury you in paperwork. Kind yeah, of. whether or not they can actually deliver on any of this uh, kind of remains to be seen. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think that's for the time being, they're at least going to like let him know that this is the next way we're going to like, you know, try to get in your way. Yeah. Um, so. I think yeah. we kind of covered everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm OK with not going into more depth in this episode. We'll we'll have plenty of opportunities next couple episodes to sort of talk about Pylea and. Yeah, the stuff that happens, is, especially once we find out how Cordy got on the throne and what she's doing there, and yeah, what yeah. will become of our heroes. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well then, in that note, we will be back next week with some more uh, Battlestar Galactica and some Buffy. All right. See you then. Mm-hmm.